2: Hello, and welcome to episode 163 of the Osher Ginsburg podcast. I'm Osher Ginsburg, and I'll be here all show. Uh, today, I'm joined by David Hunt. You can find him on Twitter David Hunt Gert. D-A-V-I-D-H-U-N-T-G-I-R-T. That's where he is on Twitter. More about him in a moment. Uh, Thank you very much to everybody that supported this show on Patreon, patreon.com slash Osher, O-S-H-E-R. Podcasts are free to listen to, but they are not free to make. So uh, because of the support of kind souls like yourself, this show has been able to stay on air in 2016 and will continue to go on air in 2017 with your support Uh, for as little as five bucks a month. As a thank you, I try to make sure I can get as many exclusive episodes through to you as I possibly can each month. Uh, But uh, there's some very soon to be revealed super surprises for podcast supporters. If you supported the show in the last week, the last month, Um, I get the supporter emails through at the start of the month of the month before. So wait two more weeks if you've just supported the show. Anyway, uh, if you supported the show in the last month, check your email. There's something special in there. I'd like to test out with you. Uh, Let me know what you think of this secret thing. If you supported the show, send Osher email at gmail.com. Each week I give away a batch of the exclusive podcasts as they exist to someone who writes a review in iTunes because that helps This show, uh, because the download numbers are great, but if you don't have the reviews, iTunes goes, clearly not enough people like this show. So it really helps if you, A, tell people about the show and get new subscribers in, and B, write a review. So uh, the person that is going to get all of the exclusive episodes as they stand at the moment is uh, Rose1023. Rose, thank you very much for your lovely review. Simply written, generously shared, various lived experiences, and great interviews. Thank you, Rose. That's very kind of you for that beautiful review. Shoot me an email, Rose. Let me know it's you, and I'll get uh, the, the current batch of episodes over to you. You can you can get those episodes if you head over to iTunes and leave a review. I'll do another one next week. Thank you very much to everybody that sent me a Podsy photo. Hashtag P O D S I E. A Podsy is a word that um, Dr. Karl. Uh, said that I'm, i might be the first person to have used um a podsy is uh, basically you taking the phone you're listening to this on and taking a photo of what you're looking at while you're listening to the show sometimes it's excitingness like base camp at everest sometimes it's me doing my dishes wherever it is send it to me now hashtag p o d s i e tag me on instagram or on twitter or on snapchat or email it or whatever you know just I'd love to, it really helps me get to know you and I really enjoy the connection that it has between the two of us when you send me photos of where you listen to the show. To quickly check in with you, it's been a heck of a week. Audrey and I just bought an apartment. I'm sitting to you in a new apartment, which, well, it's not new, it's quite old, but it's new for us to live in. Uh, For some reason, Audrey and I thought, you know what we'll do? We'll Fire a wedding planner, start planning the wedding ourselves, buy an apartment and move in all within a month of the actual wedding day. So, yeah, there's some stress going on in our houses, in this house, I should say. And because uh, my financial literacy is about as, effective as, about as effective as how well I can read Arabic, uh, Audrey and I have hired a financial advisor. Yes, we have. I'm doing big boy stuff. Um, and this guy, bless him, he had to sit me down uh, and say something that I've actually learned for quite a long time. He said, listen, mate, just let Audrey run the books and you go out and make some money, okay? Um, Clearly, you haven't got a brain for this. Let her do it. Now, I know not every household is like this, but me and money, particularly on the concept of how it all works and, you know, when he starts talking about offset accounts and things like that, I get really lost and I just kind of tend to clam up and just sign things in fear because I don't know what they are, but if I sign them, they'll go away and that'll be fine. That hasn't worked out to me too well in the past. Um but that sort of stuff is lost on me in many ways. And Audrey's been telling me forever, she's just fucking let me do it. It's okay. But look, I've got some pretty deep set of trust issues. <laughs> they trace back to some, fe- some pretty horrible breaches of trust uh, and breaches of boundaries from my past. They have nothing to do with Audrey. So um, unfortunately, she's had to pay the penalty for this and... I don't know why it takes me having to go to a professional person that I've paid to tell me the same thing she's been telling me for, for years, um, that I finally listened, but I did I finally listened. Um, Audrey's a great woman. We're heading into this life as man and wife together. And I find that trusting another person is hard for me, but it's not as hard if what it's not as hard as facing what happens if I withhold trust from that other person because if I withhold trust from another person who deserves my trust, that person starts behaving in a way that I go, oh, why are you being so weird? Well, they're being weird because they don't feel I trust them and therefore... Do you, do you understand that I have a role in their behaviour? I'm not saying that you know I'm breaching boundaries by saying I control their emotions, but the way I'm behaving, taking responsibility for my behaviour and what it does to trigger another person... Oh, this is some deep shit. I'm sorry. But basically, I realized that all I could change about the situation was change myself. All I could change was how I moved around the world, approached the world and dealt with the world. And part of that this week was just taking a big breath and trusting the woman that's about to be my wife. Yeah. But it was a tough week because I, I had a bit of a relapse this week. That was shit. Um, part of my treatment, with what's going on in my head with the ocd is exposure therapy and the way that works is you basically expose yourself to your triggers in ever-increasing increments so you basically sit with it while it's really horrible uncomfortable and the idea is that your body can only sit with it in the horrible uncomfortable for a while before it adapts and goes okay so this is the level of where we are and the trigger no longer hits you as hard and I've been increasing these increments of exposure very, very gradually, uh, frustratingly gradually, gradually, but very gradually nonetheless. And um, I kind of accidentally, um, uh, I kind of accidentally jumped a few levels up in the levels of trigger intensity, and it set me on my ass. Yes, it did. It fully sucked. Because I've been doing quite well over the past few months. I've um, been working heaps. I've been you know, getting back into working out the last few weeks, which has been great. I've been feeling really, really stable and really solid. But then to get triggered like that again and then you know to remember that, oh, fuck, I've still got this brain that makes me think the world's about to end and so my body reacts as if the world's going to end and I'm completely immobile, unable to function... And it's like, okay, all right, so I'm going to take a few steps back, back it up and and, and try again. So it's back on the horse, if if you were, um, back down the ladder of trigger exposure for a little while and just working on things from there again. But that's okay. It's going to be all right because I'm very grateful that Audrey's able to uh, kind of take kind of one look at me and go, what's wrong? And I just say, I just need a hug. She says, okay. And I give her a hug and I just focus really hard on the way that that skin on my cheek feels touching her skin. I know that sounds weird, but for some reason, just focusing on that physical sensation is enough to bring me into the moment. And um, that helps me not be out in an anxiety world in whatever land. Anyway, that's am I just rambling today? Sorry. Been a lot of coffee today. <laughs> <laughs> so let me tell you about my guest. I'm so happy this person could come on my show. I'm very grateful to Dom Knight who has uh, been a guest on this show, and uh, Dom Knight, who does the nighttime show on 702 ABC Radio in Sydney. Or, I don't know, if he's still doing it next year? I don't know. Anyway, he's, he's one of the chaser guys. He's really good, lovely man. Uh, Dom Knight hooked me up with uh, this man, David Hunt. David Hunt, he's on Twitter. You can find him, David Hunt Gert, as in Gert by C, all one word. David Hunt is an author, historian, and a comedian. His latest book, True Gert, is out now it's the follow-up to his first book the first historical book he wrote gert which is what i read last summer and it's a the first book is absolutely laugh out loud because you can't do anything else on account of you know reading about the dark underbelly of australian history and it makes you just go oh my god i can't believe this happened but i have to laugh because otherwise i'd weep uh it's, it's Australian history as you've never heard it before and probably more factually accurate and more representative of what actually went on than many other accounts of Australian history. David's first book, Gert, was the uh, basis for the brilliant podcast he did with Dom Knight. Uh, the podcast is called Rum, Rebels and Bags. You can find it now. I would highly recommend you listen to it. If there's someone in your life that appreciates a good chuckle while looking at ourselves and our nation, uh, Gert and true Gert should most definitely be on your Christmas list. Now, I do love David's writing, and why I love it is because he tells the Australian story and Australian history from a a modern perspective, one that's not the tale that I heard in primary school where the British came to Australia and saved the savages from their primitive ways. Look how how civilised we're making them. No. Uh, David's, and that's the story that I heard in primary school, his descriptions, David's descriptions of the corruption, nepotism, cronyism of the early incarnations of our political systems are gobsmacking and quite hilarious. And the way particularly that David discusses how the Aboriginal people were treated is written kind of in a way of like, you're laughing because if you didn't laugh, you'd just weep at the tragedy of what happened, um, because it is absolutely tragic the way that David uh, describes the situation and, and, and what went on. I can't describe his – I can't recommend his books highly enough. Uh, a great gift for the coalition voter in your life, because in my experience, you can actually change the minds of people who are, have really got a rusted-on point of view if you make them laugh while you challenge their point of view. That's that's why I do love his his writing. Make sure you check out Rum Rebels and Ratbags, the podcast. It's a, a cracker, uh, and go and pick up True Gert, his second book. Uh, there's a cockatoo on the cover. So enjoy this uh, coffee fueled dive into our recent past, very recent if you're looking at it in Aboriginal uh, timelines, with Mister David Hunt. My brother is a extraordinarily geeky coffee. He's an engineer. He's an engineer. Yeah. So he's like what's the most efficient process of, of extracting this particular oil from this particular bean? And that sunbeam there is the most it's a cafe standard pump yeah. inside it. So it's the most powerful pump you can get in a consumer one that isn't the $1,500 machines. It's about 300 bucks. The It doesn't have a boiler in it. Um, but so other it than just that, heats up the water as it correct. forces it through. Yeah. Correct, but it does the it does the job. Ooh. Yeah, he's he's uh. So that was the one he had, and he helped me hack the grinder. There's some shims you can get that make the grind even finer, so uh, I'm able to
3: a grinder hacker.
2: Yes. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Wow. It, 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 happy
3: happy uh, cup of Thank tea honey. You. Now is this just a, a sort of talk shit friendly conversation style of? Uh, Podcast.
2: it's whatever you want it to be, but yeah. I'll generally kind of use my extraordinary skill as a broadcaster to guide <laughs> you, guide you past the areas of interest okay. that I hope you can edify us all on yeah. and then, and you'll just think you've had pop by for a cup of coffee. Which I have. Wow. That's you just and have, uh, have
3: my leg humped by your dog.
2: It's a very special day for him. Yeah. It's it's the first day he's met you, and it's also his birthday. Oh. He's he's one year old today. Happy birthday, beautiful cavoodle. He's so he's going to celebrate by ripping something up. He tore his bed to shreds last night. And that's normally how I celebrate my birthday. <laughs> You've just released your uh, your second Australian history book in I the, the Gert history, True Gert. Mm. Uh, so congratulations on that. Cheers, mate. Audrey and I just stood here in the kitchen and, oh, shall we say, uh, adored you. <laughs> your first book Oh, that's
3: very calm, right? uh,
2: Which is uh, freaking brilliant And I absolutely loved your podcast you did with Dom Knight Rum Rebels and Ratbags Yeah,
3: that was that was a cool experience
2: Yeah, that yeah. was that was super good But I've got you here because there's a few people You know, I, I listen to the show And I, I generally through the course of to you know, I've only been Australian since 1999 And in the course of You're I was a new Australian I'm new Australian, but I'm white so no one cares Yeah Um, In the course of wanting to be a better Australian, I do want to find out more about my country and how my country has come to be where it is. And in that, uh, as I find out more about how my country came to be where it was, I uncover more and more about uh, what happened to the culture that was here. Yeah. Uh, And that's a very difficult topic for a lot of Australians to come come across. And certainly in this podcast, you know, I, I do talk about, and the, what I often find is that the more I read, the less I know. The more books I read about Indigenous Australians, contact with Europeans, the, the more I realise I have no idea what happened and I just want to know more. So I would love it if we could, in this conversation, just have a bit of an open, just a primer of uh, the version that uh, – because I did go to primary school here – the version that we got taught in primary school and versus what actually happened <laughs> – if we could kind of maybe go through a bit we of that. Can,
3: we can go through primary school because every Australian kid at primary school, Australian history is a bit of a blur. Um, it was a blur for me. Uh, it was, uh, there were there was some sheep, I remember the sheep. Uh, there was gold. Uh, there were beards, uh, lots of beards. There were there was some more sheep. Um, Bush rangers? Guy in a metal gym suit. I remember him. <laughs> uh, yeah, guy with a post box on his head. Um and uh, And that was about it, and there was Captain Cook, of course, and when i was in uh, when I was in primary school, I tried to make a a model of the endeavor out of paddle pop sticks, which was pretty crap, uh, but so was the endeavor. I mean it was a a dog's ass of a boat, uh, and so I think I captured that element of it pretty well um, <laughs> uh, and um, and that was sort of my memory of australian history i I learned nothing about. Um, Aboriginal culture, Um, I learned very little about the factors that motivated, you know, Britain to send all of its pickpockets, Irishmen and rapists, to the arse end of the world. It was all, um, you know, guys in wigs um, exploring things and putting down sheep.
2: Proudly and, and valiantly, you know, setting their feet for the first time across these mountains, um, I do recall I was at Kenmore South State School, and it was it's, the story went something like this: uh, Captain Cook bravely went south looking for Australia, and he yeah. found it in 1770, and he put a flag in it, yeah. and said this belongs to
3: the Queen, yeah, this well, is well, well, the King, the King at the time, this well, although he was perhaps on the camp side of things. So, well, you know, hang hey, on, we'll
2: get there, we'll get there. Yeah. Uh, so Captain Cook turns up in 1770. This is brilliant. No one's here. Flag. Yeah. Goes home. Says, "Hey, everyone, I found this great place." Mm. And 18 years later, turns up again in 1788. Okay. Yeah. And the locals go, "Hey, we're so glad you're here. Make a barbecue time." Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, the locals. The, apparently yeah. the story goes that the uh, the local people were quite amenable yeah. to the the whiteys that showed up, and uh, colonies. And then very quickly uh, into uh, uh, there was some amount of a military um, kind of expansion and exploration and then some very brave people walked across the mountains to the west of Sydney and, yeah, then sheep stations and yeah. rail. Um, it's very
3: important to get to the train tracks.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And yesterday uh, I went for a bicycle ride as I do from here in Bronte. Yeah. I went south to uh, La Perouse. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I was with my friend Luke Heggie, who's a, a great stand-up comic, and we rode all the way down there and we sat there on the edge of this shipping container terminal and went, you know what? For a place that is so important in our yeah. nation's history, uh, this really is just a weird industrial site and there's one street called Endeavour Street in Botany Bay. Yeah.
3: Well, look, Botany, um, when... when this, is, this is an example of how Australians are completely half assed about their history. Another story about when I was a kid at school, I got dragged off to see the Captain Cook Monument um, at, uh, at at Botany Bay, and it's meant to it was erected for the centenary of Cook's landing in 1870, and it was meant to uh, be celebrate you know 100 years of Cook having plonked himself here briefly. Um, and the amazing thing about it is, it actually gets the day of Cook's landing wrong by one day. And, you know, it says Captain Cook was here, even though he didn't arrive until the following afternoon. And that error has remained uncorrected for now 146 years. And I actually, I read about this um, somewhere and then I said, that can't be right. And I got on my motor scooter and vesped out to, to see the Captain Cook monument. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a day out. And Australians know so little about the history and care even less that it's still a day out. So before we
2: get to what's wrong and what actually happened, why is it so important for Australians now here
3: in 2016, 17, why is it so important
2: for Australians to know what
3: actually happened? Well, if if you don't know where you've been, you don't know where you are and you don't know where you're going. So uh, one of the... The things that I try and communicate in my writing, and I try and communicate them in you know an, an amusing and readable way, because lots of Australian histories are written in you know fairly thematically. Then there were convicts, then there were explorers. I try and do it as a narrative and hang it off some some key characters. Um, the The difficulty with our understanding of our own history is we miss out on the real relationship that. Indigenous people had with the land and the relationship that we attempted to have and then had with Aboriginal people. Um, and we miss out... I think we, we simplify our history. So, you know, there's sort of convicts under the lash wearing white suits with little arrows on them. Um, there's, uh, you know, soldiers in the Rome Corps... Uh, it's all you know. Lachlan Macquarie comes along and builds lots of nice buildings and calls everything Macquarie, and we get this very sanitised version of our past. And so, I'm trying to inject a bit of um, a bit of grit, a bit of smut, um, a bit of humanity. Um, and I don't think that that you know many Europeans who came to Australia came here with the best of intentions in dealing with Aboriginal people, um, and there were many positive. Um, interactions, and you know, sadly, there were also some, some violent ones and some tragic ones. You know, we're we're still living with that legacy today. So it's in, so
2: what you're saying is that we can't know where we are, and we can't know where we're going if we don't yeah. know where we've been. And, and yeah. here in this in this modern day and age, I mean, yeah. even we've still got Ray Martin taking people around Australia in the yeah. show called First Contact, second series, and he's got. Uh, I'm not even going to say his name. It's Pauline Hanson's old offside, David. I won't say his last name. Um, <laughs> yes, <laughs> we've got him. You know, just with absolutely no concept. Luke and I were talking about this yesterday as we rode. Like, how how did he even get like that? How did he get to a point where um, you know we've got basically what we've got now is we've got mainstream Australia in many ways demanding that Aboriginal Australia. Uh, conform to a set of standards that mainstream Australia conform to mm. uh, and just to hurry up and get on with it and, and, and move along. Get with the program. Come on, it was a long time ago. Just yeah. forget about it. Yeah. That's that's. I guess that's the thing that, you know, we've got. And it's so difficult to let people walk. Well, I don't want to be the one that goes, don't you know? But sometimes I am. I'm the guy yeah. that says, don't you know? Mm. Don't don't you know? That, you know, there were there were people that could make the rains come. There were people that, you know, there was no well let's start this how how is history different for white people than it is for aboriginal people how do the two people see time differently
3: um well uh, aboriginal history is an oral history and so you have a, a list of you have stories handed down for tens of millennia um and those stories form the basis of you know what's commonly referred to as the dream time which is really a set of rules and customs for the regulation of social life, uh, spiritual life, um, uh, control of the land. The the, the Dreamtime is really a set of rules for living. Um, and there's an anthropologist called W.H.E. Stanner who beautifully described this sort of approach to living as every win. It was a timeless set of rules that was able to adapt to change, but there was incredible continuity. Uh, European history is about progress. It's about not being where you were 10 years ago now. So in European history uh, and, and Western history generally, we not only embrace change, we demand it. And so we're on this course of... Progress, 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 progress. Growth, progress, progress, progress. Um, and it's a very, very different way of living. Now I'm part of that culture. Um, I've embraced that way of living, um, but it is—it's a very different way of viewing the world. Yeah? With uh,
2: so you're saying that the the oral the oral history does change over time, yep. but it's it's not exactly. This is what happened yesterday, but this is what happened before. It might have been five years ago. It might have been five hundred years ago. It, it,
3: it's, it's, and I mean, obviously, you do have notions of of time in traditional mm-hmm. Aboriginal culture, but things are not measured in in years or or, um, or, or months. Um, there are stories of the past and a story of the past that is five hundred years old. May be just as keenly felt or as or as relevant as one that is twenty years old. Got it. Um, and so you have this in 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 many Aboriginal cultures, you have um, a, a form of ancestor veneration where you see the former members of your um, your family group, your broader tribal group, um, um, having reconnected with the land physically. So that Angophora tree down by the riverbank um, it contains the spirit of your grandfather um, or that rock formation, you know, is of significance because it's connected with um, spiritually with um, a, a distant family figure. Um, so it's the fusion of the the personal, the family and the Environmental or, or, or the environment, the place. So you're that, saying that, I that, I that quite
2: interesting. This particular rock by the river, or this particular tree, yeah, is uh, is it the same as I'm going to visit this person, or I'm going to go visit this person's uh,
3: gravesite? Uh, no, no, it, it's 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 this this person. A person. In in many ways, the line between life and death is drawn very differently in many Aboriginal cultures. So there is a belief that uh, ancestor spirits can. Uh, that are still here today and can take the forms of of human beings. So a couple of examples. um, uh, Arthur Phillip, the first governor of New South Wales, was believed by the Eora people around Sydney to be um, a returned uh, spirit of of an Eora wise man because when he'd been a whaler as a young man um, off the coast of Scandinavia, he had one of his eye teeth knocked out um, uh, when, you know, a bit of ship sort of swung at him on the end of a rope, lost a tooth. And as part of a Eora initiation, um, there was an eye tooth removed as part of initiation. So when the Aboriginal people saw Philip as missing this eye tooth, they assumed that he was a spirit returned from the dead, which enabled him to have an in with mm. Aboriginal society in a way that many others didn't. William, William Buckley down in, uh, in Melbourne, who... Um, after the failed attempt to set up um, a colony there in 1803 in Port Phillip, lived with the Aboriginal people uh, for 32 years and he picked up a, a, a spearhaft from a, a burial site and walks into... Uh, uh, ..is discovered by some some Aboriginal people carrying this spear and they believed that he was the return spirit of the uh, warrior Murringurk, um and he was known as... Maringer come, you know, and was believed to have come back from the the spirit world.
2: So what I, you know, when I first when we first sat down, I talked about that. The reports of oh, some of these Aboriginal people were actually thrilled to see us. They were thrilled to see Philip because oh, we know you, and
3: they're welcoming him as if they knew him. Well, it was sort of we know you, we can do business with you. Ah, uh, isn't it time to fuck off now? I mean, yeah, that was right. the way. That was the way that the dialogue sort of yeah. went. Um, but but look. Um, we've got this notion today of Aborigin- Aboriginal people being all one people mm. and Aboriginality is a Western construct. Um, uh, before European settlement, there were thousands of Aboriginal groups. Um, yeah, so many different were, languages. I have there were map, map hundreds, on wall, yeah. hundreds and hundreds of languages mm. um, and you had um, often incredible hostility um, between members of nearby um, uh, 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 tribes. It's um, not uncommon. Happened in Europe too. Yeah, exactly. So, so, you know, the notion that um, one, of the, one of the sad things, I think, about our history is the way in which um, uh, Aboriginal youths were co-opted into native police forces by, by the New South Wales, the Victorian and the Queensland governments. And in New South Wales and more so in Queensland... They were used as the shock troops of the frontier where um, the government would send in a group of Aboriginal people from a 1,000 kilometres away to um, disperse, in inverted commas, um, uh, the Aboriginal people in another area. And dispersal was a code word for, um, you know, uh, force away and if if they get killed in the process... um, we, uh, please don't write about it in official records, but it was expected. It was it was a policy of, of forced removal carried out by other Aboriginal people. Because those Aboriginal people thought these guys are from a completely different mob, completely different language group, uh, they did not see themselves as Aboriginal people. They saw them as as, wow. as foreigners. Yeah.
2: So just back to when you were talking about this particular tree or this particular rock. Yeah. So when... Uh, Governor Macquarie goes, you know what, this would be an ace place for a bridge and decides to knock that rock down, break it into a million pieces and turn it into a a bridge or a wall. That must be extraordinarily painful for the people who see that.
3: Well, it was uh, extraordinarily painful in the sense that the place where Philip decided to set up shop in in Sydney Cove um, was a place that was surprisingly free of... Uh, many aboriginal people because it was um actually a, an aboriginal sacred area for the local um Eora people um so that area where the sort of uh the the stream uh enters circular key through those marshlands was a place of of, of spiritual significance and then you know philip says right i will set up town here I thought I'd call the place Albion, but that sounds a bit posh. Uh, let's let's go for Sydney after my patron lord Sydney. And uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, Sydney is literally built on um, the first. The first buildings of Sydney were literally built on um, an Aboriginal sacred site.
2: So, if we were standing with our back to the ferries at Circular yeah. Quay, where is this place?
3: Uh, it's 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 pretty much um, uh, just behind you and to the. Uh, to 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 the right. It's it's uh, towards George Street. Uh, no, I think it's uh, more towards. Um, uh, so if you think of where the Opera House is now, yeah. uh, Benelong that's been extended out along Benelong Point. Mm-hmm. So you had the the Circular Quay area, uh, Sydney Cove, and you had nearby Farm Cove, and you had those were the two areas where they they started building straight away. So um uh by the sort of the end of Philip's reign, they'd extended back towards central station. Mm-hmm. Um uh you know, there were some brickworks established out there fairly rapidly. Um out to Rushcutters Bay in the, the eastern suburbs there were um there was um uh there were sort of um uh, small farms appearing and out to um Altimo, um as well. so, But the, the epicentre was around the sort of circular key um, Farm Cove area.
2: There, the idea that when we were kids, again, we talked that, you know, when Captain Cook showed up, he was this sort of brave British man who... He wasn't even
3: a captain. He was a lieutenant, Lieutenant James Cook.
2: But that he'd come down here yeah. and he was sent on a mission to go and find uh, this great southern land. Oh, dog, and, well, dog's balls. And uh, he was the first one to find it. Yeah, dog's balls. Um, well, it actually happened.
3: Well look uh, he, he he was sent out as part of a scientific expedition to Tahiti to um, to to measure the transit of Venus, which is uh, an event that occurs every couple of hundred of years in in eight yearly cycles within that uh, two hundred and twenty eight years or whatever it is uh, so it 's a pretty rare event, and it 's Venus crossing um, the face of the sun um, uh, or, or or you see um, uh, yes, uh, Venus tracking across um, the face of the sun from from Earth. And that enabled mathematicians to calculate the distance between the Earth and the sun and Venus, which would assist them to measure uh, latitude um, and essentially allow, allow sailors to sail east to west without running into things and, you know, having some idea where they were. So it was a big deal back in the day. Uh, he was one of three parties sent out by the Royal Society in Britain um, to do this. And he was chosen because he was actually a damn good uh, astronomer himself, having written some astronom- astronomical papers, of, uh, a good navigator and cartographer. Um, but that was the primary, the primary mission. He did have some secret orders um, from the Admiralty that he should um, uh, pop in... Um, to basically the east coast of, uh, or he should sail home via the east coast of New Holland. So um, everybody knew Australia was here. He had It was called New Holland because the Dutch had been faffing about nailing plates to posts uh, since 1606. Uh, and so um, it wasn't a surprise that he ran into was this Australia. This is a kind of thing, like, once you get south of the equator, open this envelope, that kind of... That kind of thing. Uh, yes, yeah, so this will self-destruct in yeah. fifteen seconds. <laughs> uh, it, 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 they, they were orders that he only revealed um, as they were leaving Tahiti, or, uh-huh. or um, to, 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 to the rest of his posse. Mm. Um, maybe you know, as to i seen you, but, but they were they were considered to be secret orders, um, and this was part of the British search for Terra Australis, which wasn't New Holland or uh, Australia. Um, Back in the day, um, the Greek philosopher Aristotle um, basically comes up with the... uh, Pythagoras comes up with the idea that the the world is round. Uh, Aristotle then looks at the, the sort of northern hemisphere, which is where he knows he lives, and says, geez, there's a lot of land up here. There must be an equal amount of land down in the south to stop the earth from tipping over. Mm-hmm. You needed it to basically balance the land masses of the north, proving that philosophy is a really dangerous thing <laughs> if, you, if you get too into it. Um, and so there was a, a belief in, in many European powers that there were vast bodies of undiscovered land in the south um, and, yeah, Cook was, was sent out to look for... Terra, Australis, Incognita, the Great Unknown Southland. How
2: did the the Dutch in 1606, this is yeah. kind of blows my mind. That, yeah. Well, are nearly like, 400, 410 years ago, the yeah. technology, like these guys were essentially spacemen, you know, with the most extraordinary technology available at the time. Well,
3: I'm glad you brought that up, and I'm just going to tell you a spaceman story and then we'll get back to the Hit Dutch. Me. Because um, Star Trek Yes. Uh, uh, the director of Star Trek, Gene Roddenberry, was an absolute Captain Cook nut and he modelled the entire Star Trek television series on the Endeavour voyage of Captain Cook. So Captain James Cook becomes Captain James Kirk. Don't even. I'm, I'm going to do it. Uh, the the, uh, the Endeavour. Did he talk like that? I <laughs> so. Uh, no, he, he didn't. He didn't. <laughs> well, he... I mean, by gone, we probably talked like this. Mm. Uh, the HMS um, uh, Endeavour becomes the USS um, Enterprise. Both Endeavour and Enterprise mean to sort of you know, aspire or, or try. Um, the line from Star Trek, uh, to boldly go where no man has gone before, is a paraphrase from a Cook journal entry on the Endeavour voyage. Ambition has led me not only um, further than any man before me, but as far as I think it is possible for man to go. Uh, Mr Spock uh, is is the scientist on the voyage, is based on Sir Joseph Banks, the botanist and general, you know, uh, all-round scientific good guy on the endeavour. So even though we Australians, um, you know, no sweet FA about a lot of our history, um an American guy goes and builds the most successful sci-fi franchise in the history of the world uh, around the voyages of Captain Cook. I suppose I should talk about Dutch people now. No, right? no, but this is okay
2: because I have spent a fair amount of time in, in the, the Netherlands, in the Netherlands, in Old Holland.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, Can you say, Something along those lines, okay. that's what it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was an, an incredible society and you know, when you think about what they were doing at the time when the, West, when the rest of Europe was mm. pretty much running around in the mud, picking their noses mm. and hitting each other with swords. Mm. These people had created this fucking amazing technological advancement in the canal system in the middle of Amsterdam. Mm. They'd invented some sort of mind-blowingly complicated trade uh,
3: exchange rates and things. Well, they, they the, the, I mean, the reason that this whole area of the world became known is because of the... The Dutch East India uh, Dutch East India Company, otherwise known as the Verenigde Oostindische Company. and you do a Dutchy uh, Dutch very well. Uh, yeah, no, look, it's one of the when I do the audio books uh, versions of my books, it's one of the accents that I, I just can't, I just can't nail. <laughs> uh, but um, this this uh, company was the first um, uh, company in the world to issue shares, uh, so they invented the the share. Uh, It was the first multinational um, uh, that had, um, you know, officers across the globe. It had many of the powers of of, of a government. It was allowed to run its own army, issue its own currency, execute people, take people as slaves, um, do some pretty shit stuff. But basically it was set up to sell spices. Um, So the stuff that you've got in your spice rack at your moment, your clothes and your nutmeg and your cinnamon... They were gold. They were worth more than gold back in the 1500s and the 1600s. Food was
2: pretty bland. It was steamed and it was yeah, icky.
3: You've, you've got you got your lard. You got your turnip geez, you want to put some pepper on it just to make it not taste completely shite.
2: But isn't that, and, isn't that wild that even, like, f-
3: here we are now going,
2: corporations are evil yeah. and the private army is doing this and doing yeah. that. It's like these guys invented it for hundreds and hundreds of years ago.
3: They they did. They did. They also invented the first stock market collapse in the, the 1630s when people were trading in tulip futures. That's right. Uh, and then the, the ass falls out of the tulip market and – Tulips were selling more than... Um, yeah, a single tulip could sell for more than, you know, a, a good house in Amsterdam. And then people were trading in these futures and then why are we paying so much for flowers? Uh, and but the, the entire um, Dutch economy, which in many ways was central to the European economy, just takes a, a huge nosedive. And, and, uh, and uh, the Netherlands never recovered after the great tulip collapse in the, the 1630s and they slowly declined as a power and, you know, yeah, they were good at painting, you know, fat chicks with red hair and smoking funny cigarettes and producing high-quality European porn, but that was about it after after their glory days. But the reason that Europeans came to the to this area is the Spice Islands where the Dutch were getting their good spicy gear from uh, uh, the, uh, the islands of southern Indonesia um, and so the Dutch were coming to this neck of the woods uh, to buy spices grow spices um, and then to take those and spices. They and one day they just go
1: I
2: wonder if there's more this way uh,
3: they they they. Um, so the in 1606 you've got a guy called Willem Jansoen who runs into the Cape York Peninsula near the present town of Weeper in his ship the Dufkin. Um, uh, the little dove and um, uh, they, he calls it Os Papua um, he called part of Papua New Guinea um, or which he called Novo Guinea, he called part of that New Zealand so you know things were a bit geographically confusing mm-hmm. for the first Dutch explorers um, uh, but the Dutch had no real interest in Australia because the Aborigines had no pepper to sell um, and they didn't want to buy pepper. And really that's all the Dutch were interested in doing. They kept on then running into the coast of Western Australia because nobody had worked out how to measure um, longitude um, at sea. If I think I might have said latitude earlier. I read the transit of Venus, it's measuring longitude. Which is the uh, top to bottom. Top to bottom, yeah, east okay. to west. And so, so you literally had... Um, the Dutch worked out that the trade winds that blew in in more southern latitudes than the Spice Islands pushed you across the ocean much quicker. So they would literally run into the coast of Western Australia, often not knowing it was there because they didn't know how far uh, east they were. Um, that was the quickest way to get to um, uh, to the Spice Islands. Oh, so they just they just get down to the Southern Ocean. Yep. Go east. Yeah, turn oh. left, t- t- put on the indicator. Turn left. Oh, we've, turn we've left. run into this big, this big bit of this land. This bit of sand. People it's... throw spears at us. They don't want our pepper. So we turn left here. Yeah. Timor. Uh, yep, yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty <laughs> much it. That was... <laughs> Papua. there yeah. we go. Yeah, look, the, the GPS systems in those days right. were much easier. You could get all the way from, you know, South Africa to, um, uh, to you know, once you got past the Cape, you basically uh, turn left Keep going until you're running. How into far south were
2: they heading? Like, uh, like Exmouth and stuff like this? Or uh, further?
3: look, I don't, I don't even know where Exmouth is, which, which shame Well, it, you know what I
2: mean. It's like on the, on the western coast, yeah.
3: Like halfway up. It, 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 it could be all over the place because the trades winds blew yeah. um, differently at different times. But you know, Dirk Hartog, uh, you know, basically gets to uh, Shark Bay, or um, uh, and you know, finds a big island, and you know, says. I'm going to name this Dirk Hartog Island, stays there for three days, nails a pewter plate to a post, Dirk Hartog was here, um, and, you know, buggers off. He, he had... should have
2: bought a flag. Captain
3: Cook bought a flag. Well, well, the Dutch uh, did it with plates um, and the French did it with bottles. Whenever the French decided they wanted to own a bit of land, they'd bury a bottle with a message in it that says, you know, you know oh, we have been here, we like it, uh, we claim it for whichever Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Louis is on the throne right now, <laughs> and uh, and so they'd leave little messages in bottles lying around. So does that mean down at La Perouse there's a bottle buried somewhere? Uh, no, look, uh, La, per- La Perouse got here um, uh, just a few days after Philip and... You know, being a gentleman, he said, all right, you know, first dibs to you, mate. <laughs> uh, but but um, various other, um, a guy called de- 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 Al- 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 Alwan um, in Western Australia, uh, Marion de Fresnay in Tasmania and New Zealand were notorious bottle leavers. Um, and it's not really a very effective way of, uh, and I think i point this out in, in my second book, um, a way of actually making your intentions to the world known. Bottles are not good. I mean, Sting did not say sing. Um, I know you'll get my message in a bottle. Um, the chance of anybody actually finding your bottle, opening it, and being able to read French, um, we're pretty limited. But yeah, yeah they still did it because gotta love the French.
2: So <laughs> we we talked about the early British contact mm. with the Aboriginal people. What did the Dutch? Besides, they don't want to buy a pepper. Yeah. Um, Did they they have any other words about that? Uh,
3: Look, when the Dutch were... Abel Tasman, when he was sent uh, here in, I think it was 1642, um, he had orders from the Dutch East India Company to more, more fully explore the lands of beach. So Australia was originally known on Dutch maps as beach, which I think is a very Australian sort of... No, a lot we of Western just, Australia, that's what it looks like uh, we, from the ocean. We should, have, we should have just stuck with beach, really. Uh, and then um, uh, Abel Tasman um, spends a bit of time charting the West Coast, goes south, um, comes across Tasmania and names it Van Diemen's Land after his boss because he was a bit of a crawly suck-up, goes off to New Zealand... Um, names it New Zealand, uh, which is about the fifth place that had been named New Zealand. And New Holland was about the fourth place that had been named New Holland because the Dutch, whilst they were good at selling pepper, weren't very original when it came to naming things. Holland's quite small. There's not a lot of it. You know, there's a place called Zealand, uh Well, New Zealand, New Zealand, New Zealand. what's well, could we call our place Holland? Well, we'll call this one New Holland. Uh, they did that, um, you know, we're going to go to what's now New York, well, we'll call this New Amsterdam. Um, uh, Yeah, so um, Abel Tasman charts a lot of Australia um, or or southern and western Australia, comes back a couple of years later, calls it New Holland, um, goes back to his boss and says, it's a vile, sandy shithole. Um, Nobody wants my pepper. Um, I didn't find anything... I have no trade routes or anything productive for the voyage. He sort of got in trouble, you know. He'd added to world cartographical knowledge but um, had not established sort of new trade. So
2: if he'd... It, because if it, he, we didn't have what he was looking for.
3: No. But if he was looking for vast
2: plains on which to, you know, rear yeah. sheep or gold no. or yeah. heaps of coal and
3: uranium, yeah. we could have been Dutch. Uh, we, we could have been, uh, but the Dutch... The Dutch weren't actually interested in any of those things. The Spanish were. The Spanish were desperate to find new gold and silver deposits. After you know successfully, um, you know exploiting their South American colonies for ages, they were looking for new, um, new, new gold mines. And um, we came very, very close to being uh, discovered by the Spanish in 1662 when. Uh, Louis Vaz de Torres, after whom the Torres Strait is named, sailed through um, the Torres Strait whilst part of a two-ship mission to find Terra Australis Incognita. Um, he was out there looking for it in 1606. Um, but he's on his way home and... Um, there's been a big force sort of falling out with the expedition leader on another ship. Everybody wants to get home. They see some land to the left, which is almost certainly the Cape York Peninsula. Um, the Torres Strait was pretty difficult to navigate. There's all sorts of shoals. There are islands full of people who want to eat you for dinner. Um, and he thought, you know, I'm not stopping here. I'm going to keep on moving. Um, but he almost certainly sighted Australia in 1606. And had he actually stopped and had a look... Um, uh, the Spanish were really keen on colonising places, digging things up, enslaving native populations. Um, they did it, a it, it's a racking job in They, Mexico, they right? did, yeah. It's yeah. like it's lucky that he didn't stop. Yeah, <laughs> and it was left to the far more sensitive English to do all of those things. Did, later. On, weren't we
2: almost French as well? <laughs> didn't the French come down? Oh no, Didn't no. they get to Tasmania and, and
3: sneeze on a bunch of people? Uh, oh well. Uh, The French uh, came to Tasmania in 1772, a couple of years after Cook, and made first contact with the Tasmanian Aboriginal people, the Tasmanian Aborigines, a guy called um, Marion de Fresnay. And the thing you love about the French is the French actually had 12 great projects um, uh, that were sort of listed in the 1750s, all of which were to um, expand knowledge of the world. They were... In many ways, philosophical and scientific travellers. Sure they'd you know be interested in c- colonies occasionally, but really their exploration was to advance human knowledge. And when they get to Tasmania, you've got Marion de Fresno says to you know his crew, right, nude up, boys. Um, uh, and they went and met the first sort of meeting with the Tasmanian Aborigines is a bunch of nude Frenchmen on a Tasmanian beach in the middle of autumn. Um, and they did that. Because they believed that it was important to when dealing with you know man in his native state to to show respect by doing that yourself, so um, they turn up on the beach in the nude uh, they give the surprised aborigines um, you know the traditional beads and mirrors and a duck um, hello thanks thanks for the duck guys um, there was um, the tasmanian um, Aborigines on the beach gave some, some fire that they were carrying in, in return. And then when another boatload of nude French people made for the shore, the locals got anxious and started throwing bits of wood and stones and the French responded with gunfire. And you had that first contact story that was common in many cases, like when Captain Cook was in, in Botany Bay, um, he, uh, you know, there was, they fired upon two members of the Guagel. Clan in um, in the in the Southern Bay uh, area uh, when the Gwagal started, you know, waving spears and um, and even now that, the that these shield that was dropped by the one of the Gwagal warriors who was who was shot, you know, is now in the British Museum and we keep on or uh, members of the Or and the Gwagal people. You know keep on saying we'd like our shield back, and the British Museum says, no, it's our shield now so you know bits of that story are still alive today.
2: I sat on the yesterday there's a little there's a little lookout at, um, off the where the, the big uh, seawall is that shields the container terminal um, there's a little lookout there and, and Luke and I sat there in the middle of our bike ride just having a, a date I had a date and and a little muesli bar that his, his wife had, had made. And we are a clean living fellow, aren't you? I do my best, David. Yeah. And we looked out through the heads of Botany Bay and we just thought, you know, a couple of hundred years ago there were two men, possibly even our, our age or younger, yeah. sitting there one day on a yeah. beautiful peerless blue sky yeah. day like yeah. it is, and this thing would have come through the heads. What the fuck's go, that? That's a big canoe. Yeah. a Weird looking canoe. Yeah. What's that? oh, that's weird, they're like coming closer. Yeah. And then like your life never, ever, ever, ever being the same again. And it just got so – like even just then when you were telling me about <coughs> the, the the Frenchies shooting mm. people and then the Cooks people killing mm. people, I'm sitting over here nearly injuring, crying. Injuring, injuring a couple of people. Well, sometimes. still, yeah, well, they're yeah, yeah, unleashing yeah. a weapon that is so devastating. Completely, which and, and and you'd
3: never, they'd never seen No, before. and
2: from what I've read in that mm. amazing book, Beyond the Frontier, mm. um, you know, as far as they was concerned, so as, as they were concerned, hmm. this is essentially magic because this person can stand hundred hmm. meters away from someone and cause another man hundred meters away to drop dead.
3: And exactly the same experience when um, William Soon arrives in sixteen hundred and six. His journals from that voyage w- were lost, but we know from other accounts that he lost at least nine men in conflict with um, Aboriginal people up yeah. on Cape York. Um, when he was trying to nail a plate? Uh, no, no, Jan Soon was was, was was not nailing a plate. He was just sort of saying, where am I? Um, uh-huh. When he was up in northern Queensland in 1606. Um, uh, and there is a... Um, uh, there's obviously a degree of conflict. And when another explorer called Jan Car- Carstens comes by about 20 years later, he writes um, in his journal for the Dutch East India Company um, that the... That the Natives uh, knew of the terrible effects of the muskets from uh, their encounter with the 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 men of the Dufkin. So um that there'd, there'd been if if you look at it this way, if there were nine Dutch sailors killed, um, there would have been a large number of Aboriginal people killed in in that conflict or or conflicts, and certainly later later Dutch explorers noted that. Even though they were the second Dutch people in the area, um, you know the um, the Aboriginal people knew exactly what a musket was. Could you
2: imagine the Dreamtime story you're trying to tell your kid about these yeah. white
3: people that turn up with these things that go bang? Yeah, and look, and and in um, in um, uh, the, the the first encounter with Cook, um, you know, then things go quiet for um, eighteen years, you know. Mm. They came, they Job went. done. We chased them off. Jolly well, good. Well, you know, that that in many ways probably was, was the attitude. And if you think about um, Aboriginal people, Aboriginal people are nomadic people. The greatest surprise they had was not so much that they were visited by these, you know, pale ghosts from across the sea because moving into, moving about and you, you expected to encounter people as a nomad, even though you would nomad generally in a defined sort of range. um, Their experience was they did not live on a single patch of land for more than a few months at a time. They then move on to another resource and move in these seasonal cycles. So the great challenge for them was when Philip turns up and when La Perouse turns up, La Perouse makes the first fort no one on the Australian mainland um, here. He um, uh he, this is a permanent structure. Uh, he says that he tried to give the local Indians presents and caresses. The French, when they travelled around, loved to caress the the locals, no doubt. But, um, uh, and he said that you know they they re- responded to our gifts with darts. You know the 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 um, Aboriginal people in Botany Bay attacked the French in their fort and, of course, were were shot. Um, and so the notion of actually settling in one place and not moving on was what really confused Indigenous Australians. Because what do you do when it comes to wintertime and you're trying to get to in wintertime exactly. where the food is yeah.
2: and there's some, some guy going, "Nope, my sheep yeah. are here
3: now, fuck off. Well, and in, and, and the and, and the places where the sheep were put were generally the most fertile lands along rivers, rivers. Um, um, So a lot of Aboriginal um, uh, hunter-gathering activity um, took place in the fertile grasslands, near the Hawkesbury and the Nepean, which were not just perfect for for kangaroos and other small game, but perfect for crops and cattle and later sheep. So you have conflict over the most um, valuable... Land, um, and you do have traditional migration patterns broken because if you're traditionally walking 200 kilometres north and suddenly there's this place called Parramatta there, um, uh, uh, you think, Well, hello, uh, am I going to keep on walking through it? Not always a great idea. So it was that sort of clash of cultures where you've got a hunter gatherer society that was fundamentally nomadic uh, who were basically just interested in getting on with their way of life that they'd been getting on with. Um, that involved um, with, with very different ideas about property. So if you, see, yes. if you see a white fluffy thing on the land that you've traditionally been hunting on, You say all of your generations. That's right. You say that rock and that tree. You say I'm I'm, going to eat that white fluffy thing and see what it tastes like. And so, um, you had many conflicts between the first Australians and and the European arrivals when it comes to property over very different views of what what property was. Um, um, Of course, it was okay for Aboriginal souvenir hunters uh, around the rocks and around Rushcutters Bay. To, um, you know, chase Aboriginal people out of their, out of their bark shelters, and then to take their spears and their shields and um, flog them to, um, to, to tourists. And so there was a huge sort of trade in stealing things from Aborigines and selling them. You know that you've still got that market down. You know, sort of at the rocks where <laughs> all those shops sell crappy boomerangs and faux Aborigines. But but really, there was a, a huge sort of. We're going to go out and rough up the locals and steal their shit and put it on a boat back to to, to Britain and yeah. sell it for dinner party conversation pieces. Um, and the, and the real reason, you know, why there's conflict. We talk today about a treaty. Um, uh, when Philip came to to, to New South Wales, um, he had orders from from George the uh, Third to. uh, to live in amity with the native inhabitants um, and effectively to enter into treaty-type arrangements with them. The difficulty that Philip and other British people had um, was it's hard to negotiate a treaty when there are many different tribal groups who move around a lot. Um, It's hard to know who you're meant to be dealing with. Those people you're dealing with have got no idea of treaties for land ownership um, in any event. And the early British just gave it away as as effectively all too hard. It's not that they didn't want to. um, It's that uh, they they couldn't bridge that cultural gap at the time.
2: Would have like both cultures looking at each other, mm. like one culture going, "But this is where my family has been walking." Yeah. Not they don't know what hundreds of years are. They just know that this is where we've always yeah. walked, and on this route, my ancestors yeah. live in this tree yeah. and this rock. Yeah. Now, Parramatta's there. What do I do? And the people who live in Parramatta go, "Why would you walk for two hundred
3: kilometres? We've got a horse. Why would you? Why would you even walk at all?" Or, <laughs> or and um... and you can just sit in one spot and drink a cup of tea. Well, you know, there was more of a desire to say if you're going to go and do your walking, walk somewhere else mm. um, because I don't want you setting fire to my wheat crop um, uh, or eating my sheep. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, or there was at times a desire to co-opt Aboriginal people as a cheap labour force. Yeah. Um, and you do have interaction between where uh, the Aboriginal people many of them do move into Sydney or Parramatta or other so that there's still an Aboriginal community down at La Perouse today. Um, it's sort of Sydney's last great um, 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 when I say traditional, there's been continuous inhabit- Aboriginal inhabitation of that era up until now from mm. first contact um, and still a significant Aboriginal population in that area um, and But there was accommodation made. Aboriginal people did move into cities. They did become reliant in many cases on flour and sugar and tea. Um, uh, And you have this sort of, in some ways, new generations of Aboriginal people losing some connection with their Mm. ancestral practices because there was a cheap supply of food handed out by the white man hmm. in the white man's towns and yeah.
2: so, yeah. Well, we've talked a lot about Aboriginal people. What can we learn about how the whiteies uh, behaved, particularly in this era now where you see something like in the, in Queensland you've got Anastasia Palaszczuk handing out a billion dollars to the, uh, an Adani coal mine and, uh, you know, they, there's a lot of mates doing things for mates. This is not something new in our culture and not certainly not something new in our country, is no, it? I mean, of it goes not. back as far
3: as Macquarie, doesn't it? Oh, look, it goes. Look, if, if there was an ICAC in the days of Cook and Macquarie, they would have been in terrible trouble because, you know, we, we now, in, in many sort of advanced European based Western cultures, have very, um, still today, the unique views about probity and corruption and nepotism. But back in the day, Captain Cook enrolled um, his five and seven-year-old sons, uh, fictionally, as crews of a crew of the Endeavour, saying, um, "I've taken these two promising young sailors um, on this voyage." He left them at home, of course, um, uh, simply so he could say they'd had X number of years service at sea. So when they sat the lieutenant exam later, they'd 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 have their <laughs> they'd have their sea quota up. Lachlan Macquarie. Um, was notorious for appointing various young Scottish relatives as members of the Horse Guards that, um, uh, and, and and of the Black Watch and to the various military um, regiments that he was responsible for. There was actually a military inquiry into um, Macquarie uh, enrolling all these fictional officers who were drawing pay, military pay, whilst attending some, you know, hick, hick, hick sort of school off, off in some remote Scottish island. Um, so that was that was normal and it was normal to, to look after your family and to look after your mates. And so Australia has a proud culture of um, <laughs> I'll scratch your back and you'll scratch mine. And the Rum Corps that was formed in early, very early in Australia where the, the military basically assumed control of all trade and commerce within the colony and ran it like a giant cartel um, uh, was... A case of hey, we can do this. Let's make ourselves rich, um, and let's help each other out, guys. And they so, just gave
2: each other just vast swathes of land, didn't they? Yeah, like
3: John Macarthur, who was sort of the Sven, you know the Rasputin of the Rum Corps, um, was responsible um, as the sort of commandant for lands out at Parramatta for issuing new land parcels. And he says, oh, "I'll have this very nice hundred acres myself. It's pretty good land. boop, plonk myself here." I'll give my mates good land. If I don't know you very well, if you're an ex-convict, I'll give you some shitty pile of rocks, from, you know, miles away from the nearest river, and that's your land. But it was a system of, 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 of patronage where um, uh, you know the, the rich and the powerful were able to become more rich and more powerful.
2: Mm. At what point did we? And but they were obviously also taking advantage of the fact that it took. I don't know how many months to get a letter back to London yeah, and a letter course. back from there. Yeah, yeah. And in the
3: six months it took for the orders to come, yeah, things oh. change. And, and and that that was the the story of um, although the governors of the colony were um, uh, accountable to um, you know the Secretary of State for War in the colonies and, and Parliament and you know King George, whichever George the third or George the fourth, whichever one happened to be on the throne. Um, they, you did have this tyranny of distance where it could take you years to get a sensible reply back from England. Not only was there the sailing time in getting the correspondence back and forth, then they'd hum and ha about what to do about it in, in Britain. and So Governor King, who was our third governor and one of my favourites, came up with a really good idea, he just makes shit up. <laughs> and and he, when he cracked down on the, and, on, on the Rum Corps and did so quite effectively he said oh look guys don't really want to do this my orders from britain i'm going to you know make your life difficult in these ways so he basically just sort of created fictitious orders for himself and then blamed people back in back in britain oh really yeah it's good trick it worked <laughs> uh, it was pretty effective for a while uh and um what was it that eventually got us to oh, kind of play along
2: and you know put a what was it that eventually got us Oh, that's a long answer.
3: We don't think we've got enough time. I'll I'll give you a very quick answer. Um, uh, In the 1850s, I mean, shipping was much quicker. Um, You begin to get steel-bottomed ships um, coming uh, much quicker into Australia. You have um, the Overland Telegraph Line, uh, built, I think, in about 1872, um, which was a line all the way from Southeast Asia um, through near where Darwin is all the way down to Adelaide and then hooking you. an in undersea cable. Undersea cable. Wow. Um, uh, and the early experiences with undersea cables were incredibly difficult because barnacles tended to grow on your bits of wire and they decayed very quickly. So early experiences with undersea cables, they just didn't work. Then they basically started putting percha, which was sort of a rubber product, around them and insulating them. Um, but, yes, by by the early 1870s, Australia was literally wired into the world. So uh, um, communications that had previously taken a round trip of six months, you would do in a few hours. Right. Um, and that's when Australia really joined the global uh-huh. economy and it made a huge difference to Australia because previously if you had a ship full of wool or wheat, you'd have to sail that to wherever your market was and then you'd have to haggle with people on the spot who knew that you had a cargo that you needed to unload and sell before it went off. And mm-hmm. um, But with the, the introduction of the Telegraph, you could negotiate your prices in advance. Um, and so that actually made a huge right. difference to the Australian economy. Isn't just being able to yeah. And interesting how uh, at every step
2: of this country's European history, the technology has played such a massive role. Be it navigational technology, mm. uh, um, the you know taking oranges on your boat so everyone's yeah. teeth didn't fall out. Yeah. Uh, the technology of. Um,
3: I like oranges as a technology, very simple technology. Well, it's true, though. Yeah, okay. It's a technology. You yeah. take oranges
2: on your boat so you yeah. don't get scurvy. Yeah, yeah. And this yeah, is great. Yeah. Um, the technology of uh, plates and flags and bottles yeah. and then muskets and then... Yeah. Uh, you know, as we go forward, you know how technology at every every stage, and yet now, in the blink of an eye, you or I could sit here and, yeah. and we could we could probably text or phone someone who's anyway. standing hundred meters from the Queen,
3: ab- ab- if ab- we ab- wanted to. Yeah, ab- look, ab- absolutely, and I, I do. I am really interested in how technology changes society. I before Gert, I started off as a as a comedy writer on a um, a, a show. Um, that was being made around a sketch comedy of Australian history that, that died in the arse before it was finally green lit. It um, does happen. It, uh, and I, I, got, I got absolutely fascinated by how, you know, I, I came at it from the purpose of comedy and then I got fascinated by the history. Yeah. And so now I'm a historian who writes comically rather than a <laughs> comic writer who was trying to write about history. <laughs> um, but I, I was really interested in these technological yeah. advances. I did a, um, a sort of advertising sort of an ad for um, a telegraph sex line, horny telegraph babes for you. And the idea of trying to use the telegraph in the way that we today use, uh, you know, sexy phone lines or the internet for erotic arousal, you know, where you've got some woman sitting there tapping out Morse code whilst, you know, cigarette, you know you make me hot, baby, and somebody then trying to translate that into Morse code and being recounted at the other end of the line. Um, and I just thought it's, you know, the, the telegraph served that function of communication and being able to talk to people in other ways. But yeah. it really was, you know, the, 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 if you were going to have a long-distance sex relationship, you'd do it by telegraph. But it's only, you know, it's part of that evolution of communication. Yeah. But it's really all the same thing, which is about talking to each other and, and interacting with each other. But isn't
2: other. that interesting that even mm. that now in this day and age, you or I, I could pick up my phone sitting right there and mm. have a video call with someone in yep. Turkey yeah. if I wanted to.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, and what we might be able to achieve, you know, it's just – blows my mind. What are your thoughts? Uh, We've we just hit an hour, so I'll, I'll let you get out of here in a hurry, um, or maybe not, depending on how this one answer goes. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of talk. You mentioned a treaty earlier and mm. there's a lot of talk about constitutional recognition mm, mm, of the mm. Aboriginal people going on at the moment. What are your thoughts around the Fremantle City Council moving Australia Day?
3: Oh, uh, look, I, I, I understand why Australia Day is a vexed day. Australia Day celebrates Captain Philip coming into Sydney um, into Sydney Cove and flying the fag and says, right, we'll set up shop here. So it's not the day that Philip first arrived in Australia. The first ship of the first fleet arrived, I think, eight days earlier on the 18th of January. Um, but it was the symbolic of sort of this is where we're going to build our permanent settlement. But Australia Day was not... It was never. It wasn't considered obviously Australia Day. Then um, it later became known as Foundation Day. Um, I think the last state to adopt Australia Day, um, I think, was as late as the 1990s. It's a relatively. It it there was a, a push in the early in the 20th century to have it recognized as 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 Australia Day sort of across the board. It was known as Independence Day for a while. You know, it's. Um, uh, I, uh, look, whether whether you like what happened at first settlement or not, you've got to acknowledge it was a pretty significant day yeah. for both Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians. Um, um, I, I personally don't have a huge problem with, Australia day um, because it, it is significant for both peoples I do understand um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who would um, who who feel that it's not a great day for them to feel Australian I understand that um, on the on the treaty issue uh, constitutional recognition I think is vital um, but it has to be meaningful recognition Um And if we're going to spend two years arguing around, well, there were some people here um, before um, uh, 1770 or 1788, well, yeah, we know that. Um, It does need to be, I think, a meaningful acknowledgement. In terms of a treaty, that's much harder. Um, So the only treaty in... Sorry, Henry Henry Reynolds, who's a, a prominent historian, believes that the... Um, Tasmanian Aboriginal people who got moved to Flinders Island entered into a treaty with Queen Victoria in the 17 uh, sorry in the 1840s um, which most people would disagree with and I wouldn't agree with that although I think I agree with much of, of what Henry says. The only treaty that was entered into between um, a British person and an Aboriginal person was the Batman Treaty which um, where John Batman goes um, into Port Phillip and says, "Here's a here's a cartload of beads and mirrors and blankets and tomahawks and 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 you know bits of old tat and well, how about you give me um, all of this great land around you know what is now Melbourne and you can have this shit." Um, and there was a, a recorded document on which you know the Aboriginal cool-in leaders of the 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 Watharong people, I think they were, um, made their marks. They probably had no idea what they were signing. But it was an attempt to enter into a treaty that was an attempt to recognise that the Aboriginal people owned that land Mm -hmm. in a proprietary sense. And um, that actually forced, you know, this this real solidification around the notion of terra nullius because the Crown and the Governor, at that stage this was part of, you know, Port Phillip was part of New South Wales and Governor Burke had been issuing land and selling land and that money from the sale of land was being used to fund infrastructure and Mm -hmm. other things and the idea that rather than going through the government that you could go and buy land from an Aboriginal person um, was terribly scary Um, and it also called into question the whole basis of settlement in the first place. Um, That is, if we, the first settlers, didn't sign a treaty with the Aboriginal people, what is the basis for us being here in the first place? Because it was British practice to enter into treaties. Often those treaties were at the end of the gun. Hmm. Sign this, we'll let you wander around. Um, um, But, you know, there was some form of agreement. Didn't happen here. Um, It was legal under European law to uh, take land that was unoccupied and unimproved, that was uh, inhabited only by savages, uh, that was terra nullius land belonging to no one. Mm. But there's no doubt now that Aboriginal people used the land, they farmed the land with fire stick farming, they built eel traps across rivers, they made improvements to waterways, they planted particular plants in particular areas. Um, it's a form of agriculture in, in, in many ways. Certainly there was a connection um, uh, uh, with the land and improvement of it. So Australia wasn't terra nullius. There was no treaty. The only way, legal way, that Australia was occupied is through conquest. And, and that's what happened. It mm. was It was conquest. The question around a treaty is, would a treaty now be meaningful? Um, How do you enter into a treaty with peoples or a people who are conquered? What does it mean? What will you say in that treaty? Mm. Um, For me, unless some of those questions can be answered, the treaty to me seems like um, the concept of a treaty seems to be a sort of left-wing coffee shop fixation rather than a practical response to improve um, integration and uh, Aboriginal quality of life mm-hmm. um, so unless anyone can convince me that a treaty would have meaningful content and would have any form of legal basis rather than being a nice document written on a nice piece of paper that makes you know concerned elites like me feel good uh, whilst you know popping the cork on the next bottle of chardonnay, um I don't see a lot of point right bit of a down really
2: no no, look it's it's okay it's okay to 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 hear that because it is a very complicated yeah. it is a very complicated thing because this is something I struggle you know I would love. You know, to to live in a country where, um, you know, I, I try and as often as I can recognize that I'm standing on land. And when I go down to, uh, we're just down the street here, there's uh, Bronte Beach, mm. and you know, you go, you walk down that gully, and you know that you're walking where generations and generations of people would have come for breakfast, lunch and dinner Hmm. where, you know, on this flat land right by the water there would have been, uh, you know, uh, some marshland and there would have been water to drink and there would have been so many people living around here.
3: The Eora unfortunately did not have access to smashed avocado. They did not. No, We brought smashed avocado to this country. We brought Iggy's bread to you.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You should be grateful. Uh, But, no, I do think of it, you know, like yesterday when I was out riding with Luke and how do you then you know, at the same time go, okay, this is where we are, but also, uh, you know, what would at all be a fair compensation? What would all at all be a fair, you know, deal?
3: Uh, Yeah, look, and look, I I don't profess to be an expert in those things and, I mean, I would suggest that... that, you know, I've, I've, I've listened to Stan Grant talk a couple of times this year, incredibly impressive mm. communicator, incredibly not only passionate but knowledgeable around issues around Aboriginal identity, what it means to be um, an Aboriginal person, um, the way forward I think for um, an acknowledgement of the realities of being an Aboriginal person today. You can't turn back the clock. Um, there is not going to be any move to sort of say Aboriginal people here you can have this part of the continent where you can do whatever you want unregulated by the laws of Australia it's not going to happen Um, the question is how um, Aboriginal people can maintain contact with culture and country whilst living in the world they live in today, and mm. it's you know if if there was an easy answer to that question, and many Aboriginal people walk that line very very well, um, many sadly do not. And I, I mean I have a background in child protection; um, that's sort of been my my day job for, for for quite a while. And you see incredible rates of overrepresentation of Aboriginal people um, in the foster care system. Uh, You see um, high rates of Aboriginal child sexual abuse and physical abuse, which is symptomatic of um, a breakdown in social and family groups. Um, There are real problems today that require real solutions and um, uh, those are very, very hard, hard nuts to crack. Um, I do think, though, if people... Know a little more about their past and the um, and the manner in which um, this land was was conquered in a legal sense, and some of the appalling things that happened during that process um, there would be more willingness by many Australians to engage with some of those problems. I think with many Australians, our attitude is um, um, for example, I live in Pimble. Um, I don't have any Aboriginal neighbours. I take my daughter to school at Kirribilli, you know, which was once, uh, you know, a th- thriving Aboriginal community with the Cammeraygal people. I don't see any Aboriginal people. Um, um, I go and have my coffee um, in um, Haymarket in the morning. I don't see any Aboriginal people. I think for many Australians, Aboriginal people are out of sight and out of mind, and uh, part of my part of my writing is to encourage a... uh, ..to put some of those issues in people's minds, even if it is done at times in a slightly, uh, you know, tongue-in-cheek style,
2: yeah. Who gets them to listen?
3: Well, it's really interesting uh, about history and how um, Australians have been blind to their history for many reasons. It started off with the convict stain. Um, when I was a kid in the... How old are you, mate? You're... Oh, 42. 42. OK, we're a of, we're of similar vintage. I'm a little bit older. But when I was a kid growing up, um, and your ancestors are from Europe mm-hmm. and, and Britain. Yeah, so... I'm, I'm an immigrant too, you're as you mentioned earlier. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I come from several generations of people living in Australia, and I've got convicts in my family tree. But... Until the 1970s, there was great shame in having convict ancestry. People would go to almost any length to hide it and recreate these, you know, fantastic stories how my ancestor was a French nobleman who came here to try and, you know, invent a new labour-saving device and, you know, no, he's a he's a bloody Cockney um, spoon thief. Um, so... We were willfully blind about our history because we didn't want to get in touch with the fact that we're a bunch of criminal um, off-scourings of Britain. Um, In more recent times, I think, uh, you know, John Howard said, I think, in 1997, we should feel comfortable and relaxed about our history. That is, you don't need to worry about shit that happened um, and was it really shit? Probably not. It's probably all a bit of a misunderstanding. Don't think about it too much. And I think now, you know, there's been a tendency for the vast population of Australia to just sort of not be terribly interested. We've got this still chip on our shoulder that European history is more interesting. We like um, battles and castles and you know um, statues of inbred monarchs. These are the things that we expect. <laughs> a, these are the things that we expect a, a history to have. Um, And we don't look at the richness and vibrancy of our own history. When Mark Twain came out here in in 1895 and writes a book um, about his visit to Australia, he says, this place is great. It's got the most unique history. He wrote Australian history does not read like history, but like the most beautiful lies. Um, uh, He just said, the stories here are absolutely crazy. And if you think about, as well as having over 60,000 years of, you know, continuous human inhabitation and therefore history... If you just look from 1788, um, it was, we were a, a colony, New South Wales, founded by a bunch of, you know, pickpockets, petty thieves. Um, um, within the span of a single human life, uh, by the 1870s, Victoria and, and New South Wales had the highest standard of living anywhere in the world. Um, and that's not just gold. That's not just sheep. That was... The investment in human capital where if you were a pickpocket back in britain you could rest assured that you'd be picking pockets and your children would be picking pockets and you would be part of a permanent underclass yet when these people came to to new south wales and later the other australian colonies they were able to uh, their potential was able to be realized they were able to move through Uh, the ranks, um, they were able to become incredibly successful businessmen and businesswomen. You had women sitting on boards that would never have happened in Britain. This was a place where you could shine and unlocking that human potential is the story of early Australian success.
2: I was playing uh, poker last night as I try to do every Wednesday. So your bike ride followed by poker. Yes. You're mixing it up. I am. And um, I mentioned that I was interviewing you today Yeah, and one of them said, oh, did he, was he ever at all tempted to change his first name to Charles, so it could be Gert by C Hunt?
3: Yeah, uh, I, um, I'm, 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 go- I'm, I'm, I'm not even going to go there. I mean, <laughs> um, I think, you know, when you, when you've had my surname, you've, you've, <laughs> you've been, uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, uh,
2: yes, no, mate. I'm just so grateful you came around. I could really talk to you. I could do. But your listeners, I think your listeners have had enough, mate. Oh, uh, mate.
3: And I'm gagging for another coffee before I'll I make,
2: go. I'll make you one and I'll quickly take your photo, okay? Sure. Okay, yeah, sweet. Yeah. Thank you, mate. That was David Hunt. You can find him on Twitter at David Hunt Gert. Uh, let him know that you heard him on the show. Go and buy his book. I certainly hope you enjoy it. That's it for the week. Um, will I talk to you next week? yes I will talk to you next week I might have some weeks off over summer if I do I'll put up some older episodes but I don't know yet Um, once again thanks to everyone on Patreon who supported the show patreon.com slash osher if you are a Patreon supporter check your email I'm gonna put something there that's special for you yeah alright I love you for listening thank you so much until I talk to you next week Sleep well.
3: Dream of beautiful things.
0: Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans.